Welcome to Crime Bar. Grab a drink and enjoy the show. Hello. Hello. Hi. Okay, so this is part three, and I know everyone is eager to hear the final episode, and I am eager to be done, done with, with this, so let's just get in. Let's just this. make it real clear. There, You're not throwing me a part four, correct? Nope, this is it. This even- is it. You're done. Okay, <laughs> look me in the eye when you say that. <laughs> even if even if there was a part four, I wouldn't do it. I just wouldn't do it. You're, like, you're on your own now. I'm done. If you do want another rest, you, you do it yourself. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so last week... We left off with Cindy's new life in Richmond, where she seemed to be doing well. She had gotten psychiatric care, and she reached a point where she was attempting to put this nightmare behind her. But on October 25th, 1988, roughly two and a half years after being attacked in the park, Cindy was violently attacked for the fifth time. At the end of the last episode, we listened to a brief clip of her recounting the details to the police. All of a sudden, behind me, and I don't know where he came from. And I felt a sharp brick in my neck. And he said, uh, be quiet or, or quiet or something like that, and we won't hurt you. And then I felt something over my mouth. And my right arm being pulled back. And... I felt a sharp sting in my right arm. I remember thinking, oh my God. Um, I don't think I really remember anything else. This was by far the most gruesome attack Cindy had experienced. She was found in her driveway around midnight. The driver's side door was open and her legs were out of the car and her upper half slumped in the driver's seat. She was in her nurse's uniform with her pants and underwear pulled down around her ankles. There was duct tape across her nose. She had a head wound that was profusely bleeding. There was a black nylon stocking tied around her throat and another tying her hands behind her back. In her hand, she held a small panic button, something that her former PI, Ozzy, had given her years earlier. Pushing the button was what alerted the police. And I guess this was something that she held in her hand when she was coming and going places, especially at night, similar to like pepper spray. She had several visible needle marks on her arms and huge scratch marks on her inner thighs, and she wasn't breathing. The first officers on the scene determined immediately that she had died not long before their arrival. As they sectioned off the crime scene, new officers arrived on the scene, and just like the time that she was attacked with a knife through her hand, they realized that she is actually still alive but barely. The stocking around her neck was so tight she could barely take a breath. She was hypothermic and rushed to the Richmond General Hospital where she remained in a coma. The medical staff couldn't figure out if she was in a drug-induced coma or if she had suffered a concussion. Back at Cindy's house, police found four cigarette butts in the driveway, but they weren't the kind that Cindy smoked. They also found a bloody Kleenex and a douche bottle on the ground just outside of the driver's door. None of the neighbors had seen or heard a thing. Cindy had been returning home from work late that night and was likely surprised by the attacker and then subdued before she could do anything. So there are a couple key details in this attack that support the idea it came from an outside source and not from Cindy. When she was being transported in the ambulance, 
An officer noted there was long, dark strands of hair stuck in the dried blood on one of Cindy's hands, and she has light blonde hair. The other thing that came about a bit later, the police automatically assumed that Cindy had been sexually assaulted since they had found her with no pants on, and the douche bottle seemed to support this idea. But doctors refused to do a rape kit until Cindy was conscious and capable of giving consent. And eventually she woke up from the coma and she was able to give her consent. The nurses found significant scratches on her perineum and two gray pubic hairs near her vaginal area that did not belong to Cindy. But there were no signs of sexual assault taking place at all. Okay, so no trauma to the area? No. But pubic hair was found? And just some scratches. Okay. Police consulted with a knot expert regarding the wrist restraints they found on Cindy. The expert concluded that Cindy certainly could have tied the nylon stocking around her neck, and with some effort, she may have even been able to get out of her wrist restraints, but she most definitely could not have tied the knots that were around her wrists. Cindy ended up making a full physical recovery, but this attack obviously set her back in terms of her long-term emotional recovery. So that attack was October of 1988, And by January of 1989, the threatening phone calls and notes had started up again. After three years of silence, they just resumed as if nothing had changed. The first call said, you're dead, bitch, and it's going to hurt real bad. One evening, she and a coworker were walking to their cars together, and they found a note etched into the snow on the back of Cindy's window. It read, you're dead. Cindy was so scared that she ended up going home with her coworker and sleeping at her house that night. She ended up confiding everything to this colleague. Cindy had been notoriously tight-lipped with everyone in her life in the past, but she just laid it all out there for this woman. And it was so liberating and comforting to do so that Cindy ends up confiding in more colleagues. She's completely honest about all of the harassment, and she tells them that she's terrified of her ex-husband, who she believes is behind all of it. She said he's a very dangerous man who is capable of doing extreme harm, And she worries that for some reason, maybe she upset him or something, and now he's decided to start the harassment again. She was also honest about the extent of domestic abuse that she experienced with him, which was a new development for her. She acknowledged bits and pieces in the past, but this was the first time that she openly admitted that he was actually an abusive husband. Pretty soon, a group of Cindy's female colleagues all rallied around her. They took turns hosting Cindy for sleepovers or sleeping over at her place. They implemented the buddy system every time she walked to her car, regardless of what time of the day it was. This all proved to be beneficial because the notes kept coming. One night after Cindy got into her car at work, she realized that someone had etched a note in the snow on her windshield, and it was written backwards, so once she sat down in the driver's seat, she could see the message very clearly, and it read, sleep well. It's disturbing. (laughs) God, yes. and also the time it would take to write something backwards. I know. I, I thought I, the I whole, would be. I would be incapable. <laughs> when I read it, I was like, "Well, what if I did it wrong?" And I'd be all pissed. I know. And then I would the have to like, like backwards. It's all, yeah, it's all wrong, and then I can't get into the car to confirm that I did it right, and then I'm just gonna end up scraping all the snow off. And, and that's then embarrassing. Yeah, I would be so embarrassed. I would be so stupid. I would be so embarrassed. Security at the hospital was also made aware that one of the nurses had a stalker, so they would periodically check out the parking lot and and look at the cars and everything and. One day, a security guard found a note on Cindy's windshield that read, Soon, Cindy. But the notes weren't just showing up at work. The following day, Cindy found another threatening note on the back door of her house. 
So by now we know that the Vancouver police did not believe Cindy's story and chalked her up to being just mentally ill. But she's living in Richmond where she's dealing with a whole new police department. Jerry Anderson, a detective with the Royal Canadian Mountain Police, was assigned to Cindy's case following the attack in her driveway. Apparently, after she had moved to Richmond, Vancouver police went out of their way to communicate what they knew about her to the RCMP. That way, as soon as she filed reports with them, they'd already have this bias when they met her, which is god awful. I mean, like the Vancouver police literally were just trying to like beat her to the punch to discredit her. Yeah. During the three years that she lived in Richmond with little to no harassment, she did make a handful of reports to the RCMP, but there was also like nothing too major happening. Like there was the occasional broken window or kicked in door and they did have to respond to her home every time the alarm was tripped, which was all the time. So they were quite familiar with her by the time she was attacked in the driveway, but it wasn't like to the extent that the Vancouver police had been. Clearly, whoever's doing this to her, if, if that is the stance in which you're taking, then they're setting the alarm off just to discredit her. Logoth law enforcement, I have a feeling. It, that's totally possible, too. I also wondered, like, this is the late 80s when security alarms were new. Yeah. And the amount of times that her neighbors remarked that it happened, but nothing seemed to have tripped it. Mm-hmm. It made me wonder if it was also just, like, faulty. A poorly operating maybe? system. Like, because yeah. they're just new. But I don't know. That Who knows? So this was all fresh and new to Detective Anderson, and he didn't care that an entire police department in Vancouver didn't believe her story. He wanted to get to the bottom of this regardless of what anyone else thought. So in April of 1989, when the threatening notes and calls have resumed, Detective Anderson decides to install a hidden camera in a neighbor's window where there was a clear view of Cindy's house. A full month went by before Cindy experienced anything at her home again. In early May, she reported to Detective Anderson that someone had unscrewed the exterior light bulbs by her back door and smashed in a window. So both Anderson and Cindy are eager to see the camera's footage because it was pointed right at the back door. Mm -hmm. So there's no way that anyone could come near the lights without being being seen. seen in the video. But after reviewing the footage, Detective Anderson realizes that when it's windy, some plants outside completely block the camera lens. So the entire month recorded a plant blowing in the wind and no part of Cindy's property could actually be seen. I know. Like, can you, can you believe like, what are the odds? What are the odds? It's out of a movie. Like no, and no one knows this, you know, like he hit record. No one, the footage shows no one touched it. No one went near it. Nothing like that. It was completely left in place. So it's pure luck, whether Cindy's responsible or a real stalker's responsible They just got lucky. Like they get lucky over and over and over again. This was obviously a devastating realization, but it's only six months into his investigation. So he just repositions the camera and he hopes for the best. Whereas for Cindy, this was a really big blow because this happened seven years into the harassment. So she has a very different response to it than Detective Anderson does. However, Cindy seemed to have a lot of faith in this new detective, which maybe because he was just new to her case or maybe it was because she could see and truly believe the determination that he had in solving it once and for all she's used to people blowing her off at this point yeah but either way like cindy was not the fragile victim that she once was okay she had gone three years with little to no harassment regular psychiatric care and she had started over in richmond and grew to love this whole new life that she had built so she was not going to take this laying down 
She went to see her former PI, Ozzy Caban, and asked if she could rehire him. She told him that she was in a different place now, this was being investigated by a different department, and she felt confident that Ozzy's involvement would be like the icing on the cake. There was no way in her mind that her stalker would get away with it this time. She even asked Ozzy if he could help her obtain a gun. So that's like how committed she was to defending herself. Cindy has been described by several people in her life as extremely gentle, like the type of person who couldn't hurt a fly. So asking for a gun spoke volumes to those around her. She's fed up. Yeah, she's done with this. Cindy also went around to everyone in her life, her family, her friends, her coworkers, and especially all of her neighbors. And she communicated to them that the harassment had started back up and she explicitly told them she was prepared to fight for her life. She stood up for herself by sending the police a strongly worded letter that criticized their lack of interest and effort in her case, but she made sure to praise Detective Anderson for his dedication to helping her. She added more security measures to her home with the motion sensor lights and more alarm features such as like interior motion sensors. She also communicated to her psychiatrist, Dr. Friesen, all that was going on and her goals for how to handle the harassment this time around. He said this was the healthiest, most upbeat, optimistic version of Cindy that he had seen since first meeting her. On the evening of May 25th, 1989, Cindy's neighbor Tammy noticed that Heidi the dog was in the house by herself. Cindy's car wasn't there, and by now it's common knowledge that she never leaves Heidi alone. She's always with Cindy, or she's watched by a trusted friend or neighbor. Tammy knew in her gut something was terribly wrong. She immediately called the police to report her friend missing. What she didn't know was that Cindy's best friend Agnes Woodcock and her husband Tom were literally walking into the police station at that same moment to report that they believed Cindy to be missing. The Woodcocks reported to police that Cindy had invited them over that evening to play bridge, have dinner, and stay the night. But when they arrived right on time, they were surprised to find Cindy's car wasn't there and Heidi was alone in the house. This raised the same alarm bells that it did for the neighbor Tammy. So Agnes and Tom drove straight to the police station, but on their way, they spotted Cindy's car in a shopping mall. When they approached it, it looked suspicious, so they didn't touch anything, and then they continued on to file the report. In the shopping mall parking lot, police inspected Cindy's car and found groceries in her back seat, a wrapped present, and what turned out to be her only set of keys securely locked inside. On the door handle, they found spots of blood, and underneath the car, they found more blood drops and a few credit cards from Cindy's wallet. So the search for Cindy begins. The police went through her home, but couldn't find anything useful. They found that she set up the bridge game for later, and she seemed to have been prepping her kitchen for guests. They viewed her home as having been left in a state that suggested she was only running out for like a quick errand. So they work on piecing together Cindy's movements from May 25th. At 8 a.m., Cindy called Agnes and asked for help finding a gift. Her coworker's son was turning eight, and Cindy wanted to get him a little something. Before hanging up, they made plans for Agnes and Tom to come over that evening. At 11 a.m., she called another friend and chatted for a bit. At 1 p.m., she went out and grabbed lunch, then went shopping for wrapping paper and the present for her friend's son. At 2 p.m., Cindy crossed paths with a neighbor of hers, and they chatted for a bit. She told him that she was headed out to do more shopping. Sometime between 2 p.m. and 3.30 p.m., Cindy got a makeover at the beauty counter in a local department store. 
At 3.40 p.m., Cindy arrived at the payroll department at Richmond General Hospital to pick up her paycheck. And remember her neighbor, Tammy? Mm -hmm. She worked in the payroll department. And she said that seeing Cindy that afternoon, she was very taken aback. Cindy's hair and makeup was done. She was wearing stylish new clothes. And she had a very optimistic and confident air about her that Tammy just had never even seen before. Tammy says the hospital has a very strict timeline when it comes to giving the paychecks out. No one, and that means no one, was allowed to pick up their check before 4 p.m. Despite knowing the rules, Cindy asked if Tammy could make an exception and hand over her paycheck early. Okay. And she's there 20 minutes early, so it's like... Not that big of a deal. Yeah. And Tammy's like, no, sorry. We have hundreds of employees who all want to get paid. We all got to wait till 4. So Cindy's like, okay, no problem. I'll go grab a coffee and then just be back soon. So she runs into a coworker of hers, and the two women go grab coffee. They chat for a bit, and they make plans to get dinner the following evening, May 26th. This colleague said that she had never seen Cindy so radiant and so happy. So she was surprised when Cindy told her that she felt that she was in danger and that her stalker had something big planned. At 4 p.m. on the dot, Cindy picked up her paycheck and waved goodbye to Tammy. Tammy remembers it left her so confused, the fact that Cindy asked to get her check early. She knew that Cindy knew the answer would be a hard no. So then why even bother asking? At 4.30 p.m., Cindy was back at her house and she ran into the same neighbor that she had seen earlier. She mentioned to him that she was running out really quick to deposit her paycheck. And she also mentioned looking forward to a scheduled five-day leave of absence from the hospital for that upcoming week. She also said something to him about being nervous and feeling like she was maybe in danger. This is the last known interaction she had with anyone. Then sometime that evening, Agnes and Tom arrived at Cindy's for their scheduled bridge game. They find Heidi alone and Cindy's car isn't there. On their way to the police department, they spot Cindy's car in the shopping mall parking lot. And as they arrive at the police station, Tammy, the neighbor, is at home and notices Heidi in Cindy's window. And again, Cindy's car is not there, so she calls the police too. So now authorities have pieced together Cindy's movements from the day that she disappeared. They've established there seems to be no evidence within her home, so they go straight to her ex, Roy, for questioning. Police were taken aback by the state of Roy's apartment. Remember that Roy is a highly respected, very successful psychiatrist, but his home looked like a paranoid schizophrenic lived there. Well, isn't he also dealing drugs? Well, there's no confirmation. Okay. The police never found any evidence of that. He had several weapons strategically placed throughout his home, with several of them being on either side of his bed so that he could defend himself if someone surprised him while he was asleep. Behind almost every door, Roy stacked up several noisy barricades so that if anyone opened the door unexpectedly, he could be alerted. The police said that his demeanor was that of a person who had been victimized to the point of paranoia. Yeah. But from what they knew, Cindy was the only person in this situation who was reporting stalking and harassment and attacks and all that. So seeing Roy so openly paranoid and exhibiting signs of a traumatized victim, similar to the way that Cindy used to be, it was very unsettling. Roy actually had an airtight alibi for the day that she went missing, and he insisted, as always, he was not involved in her harassment or now in her disappearance. He said that in the beginning of the harassment, he attempted to help her, 
but they eventually severed all ties and he wasn't involved in her life in the last few years. He told police that he firmly believed that she had a real stalker and he still suspected after all these years that it was the mafia. He said the previous October, he woke up to the sounds of two men attempting to break into his home. He scared them off, but then a few days later, he received a threatening voicemail about Cindy. Do you remember the voicemail that I played in the first episode? Yes. So that was actually left on Roy's machine two weeks prior to Cindy's attack in the driveway, the one that happened in October of 1988. So that happened seven months before her disappearance. So the reason that I chose to play that in the first episode, even though it technically only came from the end of the story, was because it was a prime example of all the other calls and voicemails that she had been receiving. So I just wanted you to be able to kind of hear an example of it. So I apologize for any confusion, and I'm going to try to make it like, clear up any confusion right now the threatening calls to cindy always sounded like a man attempting to conceal his voice and several people like ozzy and the police can confirm that because they heard many of the recorded voicemails on cindy's machine however now that we know when that particular voicemail happened and whose machine it was left on and most of us can agree that it does sound like a woman yes it begs the question could it have been cindy it could It could. It could. I could say that. Apart from his alarming home life and his paranoid demeanor, the police had no evidence linking Roy to Cindy's disappearance, so they continued the search and questioning those around her. Her psychiatrist, Dr. Friesen, told police that the last time he saw Cindy was on May 17th, eight days before she was reported missing. He said she was the most energetic and optimistic that he had ever known her to be, She was talking about the future, setting various goals and plans for herself, but she did acknowledge that she suspected between the the attack last October and then the harassment kind of picking back up, she considered herself to be in danger and she needed to be prepared to take on this stalker so as to not allow history to repeat herself. She didn't want to undo all this psychiatric progress that she had, had made with him. Police also learned that this was the same day, May 17th, that Cindy dropped by the office of her former PI, Ozzy. Ozzy said he was surprised to see Cindy, not only because it had been years, but because of how different she was. She seemed lighter and more confident. Her energy seemed so different. She explained that the harassment had picked back up, but that she was in a very different place than the last time that she had worked with him. She told him about this new Detective Anderson with the RCMP, how dedicated he was to finding her stalker, how useful she feels her new home security system has been, and that ultimately she feels mentally prepared to fight for her life. And she wanted to know if Ozzy would consider working with her again. She admitted to him that out of fear, she did withhold a lot of information last time, but this time she was prepared to be upfront and share every single piece of information that she had. She said that she was no longer fearful. Ozzy said to sum up her demeanor in one word, it was brave. And he had only ever known her to be scared. She told him that she felt she was in imminent danger, so she wanted to be one step ahead of her stalker. She told him, I'm going to tell you everything this time and we're going to solve this. Ozzy told her that he was on board, but he had been in the midst of rushing out of his office to catch a flight when she had just dropped in unannounced. So they agreed to meet at his office once he got back to town 
and that's when Cindy could share everything with him. For two weeks, Cindy's search made headlines. One of Cindy's former colleagues from the children's center that she used to work at, a woman named Sue, said that when she first heard that Cindy was missing, she wondered if it was real or if it was a cover story for Cindy to make a truly authentic escape from her stalker. Like, did the stalker really get to her or did she stage a disappearance in order to go into hiding? Sue had remembered back in the very beginning of this stalking nightmare that a colleague of theirs had offered to help Cindy get a job in England. That way she could be really far away from whoever was doing this. But Cindy had declined the offer. So that was just like in the back of Sue's mind when she first heard it. During the search for Cindy and after the police had searched her home and come up empty handed, her mom Matilda moved into her house with Heidi. She wanted to be local when Cindy was found. And during this day, Cindy's family also went through her diary and her belongings. They found that since being under Dr. Friesen's care, Cindy was prescribed several different types of antipsychotics, antidepressants, and sleep aids. Everyone in her life, Dr. Friesen included, believed that Cindy was taking the medication regularly. And for the first like two years after being released from that psych ward stint and starting to work with Dr. Friesen, she definitely was taking medication. Okay. But now they kind of are suspecting that she she dropped off maybe in the last year. Oh, okay. So her family ends up finding all of the medication that she was prescribed untouched. They found 900 pills in total securely stored in all of its bottles. They found in her diary that she had written recently that she did not want her life to be dependent on medication. So even though she knew the importance of psychiatric care, I mean, she's a longtime psychiatric, (laughs) yeah, she's a longtime psychiatric nurse who had been married to a psychiatrist Mm -hmm. for 16 years. It just seems like she just wasn't taking her medication anymore. The police in the community regularly searched a wide area around her home and the shopping mall that her car had been left in, but no signs of her were ever found. But then on June 8th, 1989, four days before what would have been Cindy's 45th birthday, a roadside construction worker wandered off the job site to relieve himself in the bushes where he found Cindy's lifeless body. This is just a side note that doesn't necessarily matter, but I noticed the details, so I'm just going to go ahead and say it. Okay. June 8th, the day that her body was found, was Roy's 63rd birthday. Maybe that doesn't matter. I don't love that. I don't love it. <laughs> it's just it's worth weird. noting. Yeah. Cindy's body was found in the lot of a vacant home, only one mile from where her car had been found. She was laying on her side, curled into a fetal position. Her ankles were tied together with a black nylon stocking, and her wrists were tied behind her back with another black nylon stocking. There was also a third nylon stocking tied around her neck so tight that it left a deep mark in her skin. Her face was mutilated, essentially. It was so bloodied and bruised and decomposed that they couldn't identify her from her face. However, her body seemed unharmed. She had no bruising, no cuts, no marks or open wounds anywhere but her face. There were several tears in her blouse that almost looked like they were from like stab wounds, but the skin underneath was unmarked, not even a scratch. She also had a fresh manicure that was perfectly preserved. There wasn't a single chip in the polish, which suggests that she didn't fight anyone off with her hands. Essentially, there were no signs in the immediate vicinity of her body or even further away in the abandoned house that supported the idea that she had been killed in this location. 
A forensic pathologist at the scene noted a visible needle mark on the inside of one of her elbows, and he established that Cindy was probably alive when she was brought to this location. The police also brought in a specialist to examine the bugs and the maggots on her body as a way to try to determine how long she had been in this yard. It was concluded by this specialist that Cindy likely wasn't in that field for the whole 14 days that she had been missing. Autopsy and toxicology reports later showed that Cindy died with a significant amount of drugs in her system. She had two different types of Valium, antihistamines, aspirin, 20 to 30 doses of a prescription sleep aid, as well as 10 times the lethal amount of morphine. It's not clear how the drugs found their way into her system, though. Remember, there was a needle mark in her arm, but no syringes were found near her body or anywhere inside that abandoned home or anywhere on the property for that matter. There were trace amounts of the sedative and morphine in her stomach lining, which suggests that she may have ingested them orally. However, if she had swallowed 20 to 30 doses of that sedative, doctors estimated she would be unconscious within three to four hours. If she had only ingested 10 lethal doses of morphine, that would have rendered her unconscious in about one hour. So if she mixed the two and ingested them orally, then the doctors estimate she would be unconscious within 15 to 30 minutes, even less if the drugs had been injected. It's worth noting that it's, it is a possibility that the drugs found their way into her stomach lining via her bloodstream. So just because the medication was found in her stomach doesn't actually confirm for certain that she swallowed anything. So this begs the question, how long would it take for someone of her size to hogtie themselves? The police had carefully removed the nylon stockings around her wrists, ankles, and neck and sent them to a knot specialist. He was able to duplicate the knots on himself in about three minutes. So assuming this was something that she practiced, it would have taken her roughly the same amount of time. So police are speculating that Cindy got a hold of the morphine and sedatives at work, and then given her history, they came to the conclusion that this was most likely an elaborately staged suicide. They believe that she went out of her way from 8 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. on May 25th to make sure that people remembered her movements that day. She made several phone calls. She made plans with multiple people. She got a makeover before going to work and asking for her paycheck early, something that they speculate she knew would strike Tammy as odd, therefore cementing the interaction in Tammy's memory. They believe she then staged a kidnapping at her car, but actually left on foot of her own free will. They speculate that she walked the one mile to the abandoned home, ingested the lethal cocktail of drugs, hogtied herself, and then laid down and waited for death to come. But to everyone else, the scene and the timing that the police are suggesting is just all wrong. Remember, there was a visible needle mark in her arm, yet no syringes found anywhere near her body. So that means Cindy would have needed to inject herself inconspicuously, dispose of the syringe in a place that no one would look, hightail it on foot a full mile, then lay down, quickly hogtie herself, die, and then go unnoticed for 14 days. Which brings me to my next point. Cindy was found in an area of the abandoned property that was in clear view of a very busy road. The idea that she hogtied herself in plain view of this busy road is ridiculous. And the idea that 
Maybe she hid out of view of the road, hogtied herself, and then hopped over to the area her body was found is even more ridiculous. And this is all with copious amounts of lethal drugs that are rapidly making their way through her system, making her extremely tired with every passing minute. But in order to do all of that in 15 to 30 minutes means her heart rate would probably be quite high, of course, which accelerates the drug's impact. And remember, the doctor stated that if she had swallowed the drugs, it would have taken 15 to 30 minutes to render her unconscious. But if she had injected them, which the mark in her elbow suggests, she would have been unconscious in five to 10 minutes. Inside the abandoned home, police found evidence of parties and satanic rituals. But even to them, it looked staged. But in their minds, they believe this meant that Cindy had staged it. So where that fits into their timeline is very unclear. I can understand how they could do, possibly they could justify the drugs and the tie. Mm-hmm. But the face mutilation, that I don't understand, especially if there isn't any sort of, there is like the trace amounts of blood or like any sort of fighting with your own fingernails. If you If you were to do that to yourself, there would be impact to your own hands if you were going to be, I mean, was she stabbed? No, what? she had, no. So you're, that's an excellent question that I didn't even think to add to that. But their theory that she's committed suicide yeah. does not explain, you know, the harm that was done to her face. Yeah, that's what and, confuses and me. And you're right that her physical, you know, she couldn't, she certainly didn't like punch herself because her hands weren't, she had literally no marks, no wounds, nothing on the rest of her body, but her face was quite mutilated yeah so you could argue there's plenty of ways to do that but then at the same time where did she do that in that timeline it just doesn't Doesn't make make any any sense sense. so ozzy believes that there is no evidence to prove that she injected or swallowed any of the drugs and there is no evidence to suggest that she was killed at the abandoned home he said that if she had been in that spot for 14 days her body would have shown significant signs of decomposition and or that animals would have found her or somebody, you know, walking by, driving by, jogging mm-hmm. by would have seen her in plain view. You can, I saw videos of it. You can see her from the street very clearly. You saw it? Yeah. Oh, that's disturbing. I'm sorry. It's disturbing. But I mean, yeah. there's like a video that like to show how close her body was to the road. It's in plain sight. Yeah. Literally in plain sight. But animals hadn't, there was no sign of animals having gotten to her and Really, her body just appeared to have just recently just died. Just been placed there. Yeah, and, and to have recently died. Okay. So not two weeks ago. Ozzy believes that Roy was behind all of this, including her death. Whether he was doing it alone or hiring someone or a combo of both is unclear. He thinks that Cindy was abducted at the shopping mall, held somewhere for 13 days. Then she was either killed and her body was dumped at the abandoned home the night before she was discovered on the 14th day, or perhaps she was taken to the abandoned home still alive and then killed there Mm. and then was discovered the next morning. Even with all of this conflicting information, police officially rule her death as a suicide, noting that there was no evidence of foul play. Ozzy and of course her friends and family all strongly disagreed and they openly disputed some of the reasons that the police claimed supported their decision. Her family believes that given the amount of sedatives that they found in her home, if she truly wanted to kill herself, they think that she would have laid down on her bed, written a note, and peacefully died in a drug-induced sleep. The biggest sign that disputed this suicide theory, at least in the eyes of her family, 
was the fact that Cindy had left her dog Heidi all alone. She hadn't left out extra food and water for or anything like that. She didn't ask anyone to watch Heidi like she normally did either. But on the flip side, one could argue that Cindy had intentionally invited her friends Agnes and Tom over, knowing that they'd find Heidi and immediately take her into their care, which would have only left Heidi in the house for like an hour or two. But I think the most compelling argument disputing this suicide idea came from Cindy's colleagues. They believed it was next to impossible that Cindy could have stolen that amount of morphine from the hospital. So drugs like morphine were kept under lock and key, and whenever a nurse or a doctor needed to access it, they had to get administrative approval. Then they needed a witness present as a third person unlocked the cabinet. In addition, every shift required two nurses to do careful inventory of all the drugs like that. Mm -hmm. So that doesn't mean that Cindy didn't find a way. It just seems like a really insane amount of effort that would have taken years. And a fraction of the morphine found in her system would have done the job, especially mixed with sedatives. So it's an overcompensation. An overcompensation that like based off of the 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 rules surrounding like that those types of it's drugs not it just doesn't, it's not realistic lastly dr friesen told police that based off of the last few months and particularly her upbeat demeanor the last day he saw her the idea of suicide made no sense to him cindy's dad otto gave several interviews criticizing the police and their lack of investigation into her death he said quote in the last eight years she didn't even know what a normal existence was like She couldn't go outside her door and feel safe. The police did not investigate the possibility of homicide, of someone murdering her, but they zeroed in on trying to prove that she committed suicide. I'm very angry with the ineptitude, the bungling by those who are responsible to protect our citizens and to do something about, first of all, preventing a death like this, and secondly, when it does occur, not investigating it properly. So there was enough uproar about the conclusion that Cindy had committed suicide that a coroner's inquest is ordered. So this is similar to a criminal trial, and it comes about when there is significant debate surrounding the cause of someone's death. The information is presented to a jury from both sides of the argument. Witnesses, experts, and specialists are called to testify. And then instead of settling on a sentencing, they settle on the most likely cause of death. The jury has to pick between these options, death by suicide, death by homicide, death by natural causes, death by accident, or death by unknown event. An inquest is usually very informal. It's not the same as like a big criminal trial. People of the public don't just come in and sit on it. However, this case had gotten a lot of attention, so the courtroom was packed, (laughs) and 85 witnesses testified over the course of 40 days. The jury consisted of five people, a housewife, a bus driver, a retired furnace repairman, a small shop owner, and a property manager. Those are the people who were presented with every chronological detail of Cindy's last seven years. At the inquest, the theory that Cindy had multiple personalities and that one personality was trying to kill her was formally introduced but those around her testified that this simply couldn't have been the case. Over the course of her 45-year life, her family saw her in every capacity one can see a loved one, but never once did they get the impression that she had a personality disorder, 
And they say there is simply no question in their minds that she was not mentally ill. Do they believe someone was conducting mental warfare on her? Absolutely. Was that slowly destroying her mental health, physical health, and quality of life? Again, absolutely. But did she have any signs of multiple personality disorder? No, none in their opinion. Many psychiatrists who came into contact with Cindy over the last seven years also testified, and they all gave very different opinions on her mental state. One diagnosed her with severe anxiety disorder. Another one diagnosed her with borderline personality disorder with a tendency to be full of rage. Another one claims that he saw glimpses of paranoid schizophrenia, but he hadn't had enough time with her to properly diagnose this. Another one claimed that he had diagnosed Cindy as having multiple personality disorder and that he believed in all sincerity she did not know when her other personalities were taking over. And just a side note, today we know we know multiple personality disorder as dissociative identity disorder or DID. Mm-hmm. Another one said that he also suspected that she was doing this to herself, but that in all the other cases where he observed uh, criminal victimization, the people in question didn't even have it in them to do this type of self-inflicting harassment more than a couple of times. And most of them weren't capable of harming themselves in some of the ways that Cindy had been, like like the time that she Degree. was found with a knife in her hand. Dr. Friesen testified, and he said that he does not believe that Cindy committed suicide. He stated that he spent several years treating her. He saw her in various states of consciousness, everything from light and casual chatting to deep states of hypnosis. And he says that never once did he observe anything that indicated there were multiple personalities within her. He said that even though she did have suicidal ideations for a while, he doesn't believe she had them at that point in her therapy treatment when she went missing. He believes she was on the mend and was regularly showing signs of improvement. He also said that it's important to know that all of the mental health professionals who came into contact with her in the past and speculated that she may have certain disorders were all brought into the picture from the police as a way to confirm that she was her own tormentor. He is of the mind that the mental health professionals who hadn't ever treated her were wrong for speculating. The not expert also testified, and he said that the bindings from the nylons that he inspected would have been difficult for Cindy to have tied herself but with enough practice, she could have done it. And he even demonstrated on himself in front of the courtroom, and it took about three minutes to duplicate what was found on her body. Mm-hmm. He also said that he had never seen a death scene involving bindings that were tied as loosely as the bindings that had been found on Cindy. He said they were very tight, but not so much that she couldn't have gotten out of them. But the thing that struck him as odd was that normally if a killer ties up a victim, they use a much stronger material like rope or cables and regardless of how tight they are nylons are possible to wiggle out of pat mcbride the police officer that cindy dated right at the beginning of the stalking situation remember he had eventually gotten kicked off the force because he was accused of sexually harassing several women and cindy's diary had stated that she felt he took advantage of her vulnerability as a way to get closer to her which is what resulted in her finally ending things with him pat was called to testify And he said that he always believed Cindy knew who the stalker was, but that for whatever reason, she was terrified to share what she knew with anyone, including him. 
He does claim, similarly to Ozzy, that she phrased things in a way that allowed him to read between the lines and gather that her ex, Roy, was behind the harassment. Pat also said that right around the time that he moved into her house, he asked a female colleague of his to interview Cindy off the record just to get this colleague's kind of take on things. And she told Pat she believed with 100% certainty Cindy was lying. She said that she believed she was a seductress who sucked men into her orbit, pretending to be a damsel in distress. And I think it's really worth noting this. This colleague of Pat's and later on officer Carol Ann Halliday were the only two female officers to ever come into contact with Cindy during her torment. And they both walked away with the same opinion that Cindy was mentally ill and responsible for all of her own torment. Wow. So just worth noting. Worth noting. Pat's partner from that time, the guy named Andy, he was also called to testify. And he told a very interesting story from November of 1982. He said that it was their nightly routine to clock in, drive over to Cindy's and have coffee around 9 p.m. and visit for a little bit. During one of these visits, he used Cindy's phone to make a call. Then he and Pat went out on patrol. A couple of hours later, Pat attempted to call Cindy but couldn't get through, so they went by her house. It turned out that in the short time they'd been gone, Cindy's phone lines had been cut, and she hadn't even realized. The guys inspected the severed lines, and then Andy noticed that Pat wandered into the bedroom that he'd recently started moving into. He was rummaging around in his toolbox and then froze. He called Andy into the room and quietly said, look at these pliers. They seemed to have fibers that matched the phone lines that had been cut. And this was significant because Pat said that he had only just cleaned his tools the day before and he hadn't used any of them since. Pat had been an electrician prior to becoming a police officer, so he was extremely anal about keeping his tools clean. So he, he like, made note of it. He made note of it. Like he, he knows. No, no one else would have touched them. They went outside and compared the fibers to the severed lines and they looked identical. So Pat never said the words, I think Cindy did this, but that was what he was alluding to when he brought his partner in to show him all of that. Andy believed that despite Pat taking a special liking to Cindy and feeling protective of her, he didn't think that Pat believed her stalking theory with 100% certainty, but that he also didn't have enough proof to deny that she might have a real stalker. Roy took the stand, and he stated that he and Cindy had had a marriage made in heaven. Boy. He did. For you, maybe. You know? I know. He denied the allegations that he abused her. He admitted to slapping her across the face twice in all the time that he had known her. But he says that technically, technically, and I picture him like pushing up his glasses, you can't label him as physically abusive because he claims that he never left a bruise on her body, caused abrasions on her body, contusions on her body, or broken any of her bones. That just makes him more of a monster, the fact that he is keeping that in mind, that it's not, I mean, hitting someone out of rage is unacceptable, but being mindful of like the technicality. Yeah. And I also find it very interesting that he didn't claim to not have mentally abused her. He's just focused on On the physical. Roy said that after sitting in on this inquest, listening to the lack of psychiatric care she received over the last seven years, he was appalled because he's on the outside, so he didn't know what type of care she was getting. Mm -hmm. And he said it was evident that up until she found Dr. Friesen, 
the mental health professional she came into contact with failed her royally. He was of the opinion that if an ethical and respectable psychiatrist was presented with Cindy and all of the information regarding her personal life, her history, her family, the stalking she was experiencing, and so forth, they would have taken her on as a patient and tried to provide proper care. Instead, he feels that every time her case fell on the desk of one of his colleagues, everything was filtered through the police's biased opinion. Therefore, the psychiatrists were meeting Cindy with a goal to confirm the theories presented by the cops. He felt that if the police and the psychiatrists had viewed Cindy as a real victim and worked together, they could have saved her life. And honestly, I think whether you believe Roy was involved or not, that is a very accurate observation that he yes. made. He said in his professional opinion, he believed Cindy had multiple personality disorder. He felt that that was the only logical explanation for the lack of physical evidence. He said this is also the only diagnosis that connects everything that's happened in a way that makes sense. So with, well, I'm just going to call it DID because that's what we call it today. With DID, typically a person experiences an extremely traumatic event and as a way to cope, their personality may split. This allows them to disassociate with the personality that had originally experienced the trauma. This allows temporary relief in a totally different reality. While they're in this new personality that doesn't have any memory of the trauma, they genuinely have no idea what has taken place inside of their mind. So then when they revert back to the original personality that had experienced the trauma, they have no memory of the switch. So regardless of which reality they're in, they believe that's the only one but they may become aware of things that have taken place during the switch, mm -hmm. which can cause stress and fear and so forth. Roy claimed that when they were married, she did show subtle signs of the supposed DID diagnosis. Okay. He said that she had an irrational fear of being suffocated and it showed up as a reoccurring night terror. He said that when she'd have one of these, it would take several moments to wake her and bring her out of this terrified state. It was like extremely paralyzing. She told him that in those dreams, she could see herself sleeping in the bed and these big hands that were so huge, they almost looked like big clouds coming down over her face and blocking her airway. And Roy blatantly blamed her dad, Otto, for all of this. He called his former father-in-law a vain, egotistical, overbearing authoritarian. He said Cindy was controlled by her father her entire life and that she felt like she couldn't escape him. And I find that very interesting that most people, including Cindy in her diary, describe Date Roy. Their dads. Well, that too. <laughs> that too. But they describe Roy in almost the same way and observed a very similar dynamic between them. Anywho. Roy also said that he doesn't believe that Otto's behavior was the total root of her trauma, but that it actually stemmed from a sexual assault that Cindy experienced at the hands of her brother, Doug, when they were teenagers. Cindy's sister, Melanie, testified as well. During the inquest and later in interviews, all of her family has refused to discuss this supposed sexual assault. But what Melanie has confirmed is that most of what Roy described about Otto was true. He was an alcoholic who was verbally abusive. Growing up in their home, children were seen but never heard. She also described many of the same punishments that Cindy had written about in her diary and had kind of subtly confessed to some people around her. But I found that the most interesting part of Melanie's testimony was this. 
So you remember that time that Cindy did hypnosis and supposedly recalled a memory from a sailing trip where she walked in on Roy dismembering bodies? Melanie claims that in early 1982, so this is a year after the supposed sailing trip, but before the divorce and harassment begins, Cindy confessed to Melanie that during a sailing trip in the summer of 1981, she walked in on Roy dismembering a body. In the story that she told Melanie, when Roy saw her, he hacked off a body part, then walked over to her, smeared the body part across her head and told her, I can easily do this to you too. So I found this very interesting, baffling is a better word, because if this is true, then Cindy likely didn't recall this as a suppressed memory during that hypnosis session. But also what the hell? And also if if you're hearing this information from your sister, you report it. That's what I mean. And this has never been brought up. No one has mentioned it. No one in her family. They don't believe her. Cindy. Well, that's her sister did. That's. And so I'm like, what are you? So maybe there was a fear thing involved. Obviously. Yeah. It, it could have been. And I, I I do think it's really interesting that she has like a fixation about her throat clearly, like even her night terrors of being choked. Yep. And then everything is the stocking around the neck. There's every single attack has to do with strangulation or being tied. She's fixation. She's never had one attack where she didn't have that nylon around her neck. (sighs) It's a big bummer. Yep. But you could argue that he knew that he knew this and he's feeding highly intelligent. And so he's feeding into all these things. And then you could argue that her other personality is trying to kill her with the method. Yes. She's the most fearful. Yes. Yep. So after hearing testimony from 85 people over the course of 40 days, the jury settled on a verdict in only three hours. They determined that Cindy had died of an unknown event. I mean, it is unknown. (laughs) I am confused. If I were on that jury. None of us know. Okay. So we're now coming to the end of our story. Okay. But I have one final theory to throw at you before we finish. Love that. This theory is by far the craziest, yet it also seems to make the most sense. Did you come up with this theory? No. I was going to say it's awesome. But that would be so funny if I was like, this is my theory and my theory alone. And it it makes makes a lot of sense. (laughs) (laughs) So there were rumors floating around that in the Vancouver area during the 1980s, there was an underground world of psychiatrists who were torturing and killing people. The theory claims that Cindy knew of it based off of her connection to Roy, as well as her own involvement in the field. This theory suggests that she found out around the time of the divorce and as a way to keep her quiet, this group of psychiatrists started harassing her and attempting to kill her. So that sounds really outlandish, right? I just want to do a whole episode dedicated to these underground killer psychiatrists. We'll just wait. (laughs) For years, no one, including the police took this theory seriously until November of 1989, six months after Cindy died and just a few weeks before the inquest into her death began, Vancouver police arrested a prominent psychiatrist named Dr. James Tyhurst. Tyhurst had been the head of the University of British Columbia Psychiatric Department from the late 1950s to the early 1980s. Almost every psychiatrist in the Vancouver area during that time trained under him, including Roy, who trained under him for the first eight years of his career, and many of the psychiatrists who had observed Cindy during her years of torment. 
the same ones who testified at the inquest spouting off all sorts of conflicting speculation that they had no business doing. Early in Tyhurst's career, he was involved with the CIA's MKUltra experiments. He was particularly interested in brainwashing techniques, and he later incorporated several techniques into his practice that are now considered abusive, like electroshock therapy and sensory deprivation. A female psychiatrist who trained under him later stated that he was very Freudian in his approach to his patients. For example, if a female patient told him that her father molested her when she was a child, Tyhurst would tell her that deep down she wanted that to happen, so she enticed her father to do it. Tyhurst was arrested after several former female patients came forward with accusations of slave labor, sexual abuse, and brainwashing. Some of them were whipped, chained, and beaten during their sessions. They referred to Tyhurst as master and he to them as slaves. Sometimes he would take them to his private home or to the farm that he owned way out in the middle of nowhere and force them to do hard labor in the nude. If they objected or disobeyed or he was worried they would tell, he would threaten to brand them like cattle. All of this abuse was something Tyhurst convinced them was a necessary part of their personalized treatment plan. After a thorough investigation found all of the claims to be true, Tyhurst was eventually found guilty of all charges and sentenced to prison. After his sentencing, some of Tyhurst's colleagues called him a monstrous psychopath who demolished the mental state and health of his patients for over 20 years. Back in the summer of 1981, a former female patient of Tyhurst came forward with similar claims. But somehow, Tyhurst made her go away. I assume he paid her off or something like that. But tons of people in the field learned about this at the time. So it's possible that Cindy heard about it. And then a few weeks later is when this supposed incident took place on the sailing trip where Cindy found Roy dismembering bodies. So there are many theories about how Cindy potentially learned of Ty Hurst's real behavior, or perhaps Roy was involved and she found out about it, or if she found out that it was an entire underground operation. Either way, the suggestion is that Ty Hurst was involved with Cindy's harassment because she knew too much. Okay. If this underground world is true, then Officer Halliday's suggestion to be evaluated by a forensic psychiatrist means that she inadvertently put Cindy in the care of one of her tormentors. It could also explain how Cindy wound up with so much morphine in her system when she died. She would have struggled to get her hands on that much, but it would be easier, easier access to someone like a psychiatrist. So to be frank, this is a conspiracy theory. Yet it, it also sounds the most legit. It also, literally, it sounds like the most legit possibility. But nevertheless, the police investigating the Tyhurst case don't believe that there's any connection to Cindy's case. To the extreme frustration of all involved, evidence confirming one theory over the other has never been found. Sometimes there's very strong evidence to support one theory only to be followed up by equally strong evidence of another theory being more likely. Cindy filed over 100 police reports over the course of seven years. It's estimated that the police spent roughly $1.5 million investigating her claims. Wow. This stalker was either the most intelligent, detail-oriented criminal who meticulously outsmarted several different police officers, private investigators, multiple police departments, and various detectives. 
or perhaps the stalker simply didn't exist. Everyone who believes Cindy's claims of harassment, they firmly believe that she did not kill herself. The people who believe that she was mentally ill and staging all of the harassment, they firmly believe that she did kill herself and that she did it in a way that would align with the harassment from the past. Every single person who knew Cindy or was involved in her case can all agree her fear was real. Her quality of life being zapped was real. Her mental and physical deterioration was real. It's whether or not she was doing this to herself or if she was an innocent victim that opinions start to differ. But what is not up for debate is that Cindy was in serious need of help for over seven years, yet she was failed by so many. And as a result, she paid the ultimate price. Many of Cindy's colleagues from over the years who were present for the inquest said that hearing about what Cindy's childhood was really like provided so much insight into her chosen career path. She chose a career, Kawil. She chose the Kawil. <laughs> I love that you don't even have to say it. You're like, the chose the Kawil. I chose the Kawil to psychiatry. <laughs> God, I'm delirious right I now. I know, me too. She chose a career where she could help children in toxic environments and hopefully help those families create healthier dynamics, something that she didn't have in her own childhood. Her colleagues have praised the dedication and nurturing that Cindy showed to the children that she worked with. Today, there are many happy and healthy adults out there because of Cindy's role in their childhood. The thing that broke Cindy's family more than anything is that she truly was the most gentle and kind. She made a career out of nurturing and she couldn't possibly hurt even a fly, which makes it all the more devastating that anyone would take pleasure in mentally torturing her, going so far as to physically attack and then eventually kill her. Cindy's parents, Otto and Matilda, have long since passed away, but they always kept her in their hearts and continued to advocate for her. Dr. Roy Makepeace died in 2013 at the age of 87. Cindy's sister, Melanie, has written a book titled, Who Killed My Sister, My Friend? And she hopes to publish it one day. She says that she misses her sister, especially during milestone events in their family. But that sadly, in a story like this, with the lack of answers available, Cindy's family doesn't really have a choice but to move on with their lives. And that is the tragic and bizarre story of Cindy James. We really need to do like some sort of like recap episode after people have like caught up to everything. Um, I think like in a week or so and discuss like what, what we think, what we think. I think that's a really good idea because even I need to listen to all three back to back because it's like there's just such an overwhelming amount of information. I'm so quick to do a really long episode because my attention span is longer and Than yours mine. are much shorter because Christ. you have not as long of, not as big of an attention span. Very true, very true. But for me to say that this is, there was too much detail in this story. That says it all. Says it all. The fact that I was so overwhelmed with all the details and trying to organize it all in chronological order and this went on for so long. In all sincerity, I don't know what I believe because I have to confess you know this, but everyone mm-hmm. listening doesn't know this. I have so many irrational fears. And one of no. them. No. What? <laughs> you? No. <laughs> no way. It's so reasonable. <laughs> <laughs> um, but my biggest fear is telling someone, confiding in someone, trusting someone so much that I share all of these wild 
crazy fears Mm -hmm. and they turn out to be a terrifying intelligent psychopath who uses it against me like jack nicholson and witches of eastwick and you know what i'm just realizing in this moment this is why this story resonated with me so much i this literally just hit me like i i truly believe that there's a possibility she has disassociative identity disorder correct there's a very strong possibility that this whole underground world thing is true and she somehow knew about it and then they all decided to try for her crazy her life. Yeah. And I also think that Roy is perfectly capable of of knowing all these things that he's got all this information he's gathered from his wife over the years and then they split up and then he decides he's just going to ruin her life because she won't yes. take him back. The timing of it is suspicious. But like all of that, it's like. Like if she was being terrorized, it's in the most, it's in the worst way because they're staging everything to make it look like she's mentally ill. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. You know what? I have also always had this fear of being like accused of being mentally ill when yes. I'm not and being like, like locked them. up. Yeah. Like, like back in the day when your husband could just be like, I'm sick of your shit. I'm taking you to the looty bin. Yeah. And the more you protest, the crazier you look. Right. Like, and like so Angelina Jolie and Changeling. I'm like just realizing as I'm talking through all of this, it's very how triggering. much this has resonated with me. And that's partially why I had to do it and partially why I was not doing well as I wrote it. It's <laughs> literally, you chose a crime where you're they're basically claiming insanity yeah that's your biggest fear i always choose crimes where the husband's living leaving a double life yeah and as a dark side that's so true yeah we like to we like to discuss the things it's a morbid curiosity out of protection yeah as well yeah that's so interesting i did not piece any of that together look at us psychoanalyzing ourselves (laughs) on air (laughs) (laughs) join us what have you learned about you So this was our finale, our season six finale. Mm -hmm. And we are going to go on a brief hiatus for a few weeks because we have a massive, massive project that we are working on that is going to launch in like mid-March and we need a few weeks to work on it. But it's a very, very big deal. We're very excited. We're very, very excited. We think that everyone listening is going to love it. Better so, love it. So please don't forget about us in the <laughs> next know. few weeks. We're still, we're, still, we're still here. We're still here. We're okay? still here, you guys. Just because you don't hear us every Wednesday doesn't mean that we're not here. Because we really are here and we're working really hard to give you... Things you, that you're going to like. Things that you're going to like. Yeah. So... I think that we can sign off our and top go stay on. We though. could go. Our, yeah, no, our tops. It's not any nudity. You perverts. <laughs> no one's seeking that except for me. No one I want to clarify. That. Okay. <laughs> Shirts remain on. So uh, let's close this up. Okay. Let's go have a drink. And then you just, need a whole bottle. You just put like a straw in a I'm bottle of wine. A, I'm going to do that. Do some champagne. Celebrate. Yeah. And then um, we will be back in a few weeks. But I think that we're, I'm very, very curious what people think of this episode I am or too. of the, of this story. I'm going to re-listen to everything. And then I think we really should reconvene just for fun. And, and I think discuss. so too. I think maybe in like a week or two when like people have had time to catch up on yeah. all three, we could just do like a little chat about it. Just kind of see like what people think. So I think that to anybody listening, if you have any input or if you have anything to say or any, you know, any points that you want to mm-hmm. make that we could talk about in that little mini episode, we could even do an Instagram live and have people sending questions as we're doing it. So it's like we're talking to people. Oh, that's a great idea too. That could be fun. Oh, that could be really fun. All right. Well, let us know if you like that. Yeah. <laughs> if you've gotten some, this far. Say something on Instagram if you're still listening. If you yeah. want us to do that, please let us know. Mom. Okay. <laughs> Mom. All right. Love you. All right. Love you. Bye. Bye. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you enjoy listening. We owe everything to the many journalists, authors, filmmakers, psychiatrists, and psychologists whose extensive work and expertise we pulled from to share this episode with you. To view detailed source material, as well as content from today, please visit us on Instagram at Crime Bar Podcast. We really love doing this show, and if you'd like to help with the continued creation of it, you can support by donating to our Patreon, patreon.com slash crimebarpodcast. This episode was hosted by Ashley Brumley-Johnson and Ana Katarina. See you next week.